OCO and greetings. I'm Jay Winter Night Wolf, and this is the American Indian Indigenous People's Truths. Justice for All, the most dangerous show on podcast, radio, and everywhere else. Don't go away. My grandfather is the fire. My grandmother is the wind. The earth is my mother. The great spirit is my father. The world stopped at my birth and laid itself at my feet. And I shall swallow the earth whole when I die. And the earth and I will be one. Hail the great spirit, my father. Without him, no one could exist because there would be no will to live. Hail the earth, my mother, without which no food could be grown, and so cause the will to live, to starve. Hail the wind, my grandmother, for she brings loving, life-giving rain, nourishing us as she nourishes our crops. Hail the fire, my grandfather, for the light, the warmth, the comfort he brings, without which we be animals, not human. Hail my parents and grandparents, without which I, nor you, nor anyone else could have existed. Life gives life which gives unto itself a promise of new life. Hail the great spirit, the earth, the wind, the fire. Praise my parents loudly, for they are your parents too. O great spirit, giver of my life, please accept this humble offering of prayer, this offering of praise, this honest reverence of my love for you. Welcome back. I'm Jay Winter Night Wolf, and I have a very, very special guest. Or should I say friend? Should I say brother? How about all of that with me today? His name is Joel Siegel, and Joel is the former senior legislative assistant and speechwriter to Representative John Conyers from 2000 to 2013. Joel is the national director of the Justice Action Mobilization Network a national global network working to rapidly transition America and the world to 100% clean, renewable energy and to fight poverty. He is a leading national anti-voter suppression voting rights activist. Joel has led efforts in Congress on voter 
suppression, universal single-payer health care, global HIV AIDS, and Hurricane Katrina. Joel actually wrote a lot of the major bills that were passed by the U.S. Congress. He is a professional funky bass player and a recording artist. Joel is helping to organize national voting rights and anti-voter suppression summits in Charlotte, North Carolina, and other cities across the nation in order to build a new national coalition to fight voter suppression and stop it. My brother, my friend, Joel Siegel. Welcome to this broadcast, bro. That was, uh, that was an incredible introduction. I, I forgot I was doing all that work. <laughs> <laughs> How can you forget? Yeah, it's been, um, it's been a busy, you know, with the Trump administration and, and the Republican-controlled Senate, you know, this, this is the most important election in our lifetime because we, we have really gone towards authoritarianism and fascism and you know uh i've never to the right of ronald reagan and i've never seen it quite it's white nationalism and um authoritarianism but also tax the rich voter suppression and you know this is the time for everyone to realize this is the single most important election that we've ever had but also the fact that he trump doesn't believe climate change is real and the subsidy of about 10 years to, to dramatically reduce our footprint from you know, to nothing. If we reelect Trump, you know, really, I'm telling you that this you know, could spell the end of civilization. So this is very, very serious. And um, we have to uh, come together and get him out of office. And, do, and, you know, if Biden gets in, then we fight like hell for a Bernie Sanders like a gym you know, to get passed. There you go. There you go. Yeah, man. So, Joel, yes, you've been retired for a little while, and yeah, and you moved yep. down to Charlotte, North Carolina, close to where your home is. Yes. What are you doing down there? What are you doing? Back? What are you doing down there? <laughs> um, what am I doing? <laughs> um, what the hell are you doing down there, Joel? <laughs> I'm just watching Netflix mainly all day long, and uh, no, uh, I'm not. Um, I, I, I decided that Charlotte was a great place to organize because we Duke Energy is here. That's the second largest utility in the world. Mm-hmm. I'm fighting 100% renewable energy. They're fighting to maintain the fossil fuel industrial complex. It's the banking center of America. I'm fighting for economic justice. And here's, and I just thought, well, what a great place to you know, raise hell and organize in Charlotte, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Plus, uh, I really miss the black community here. I grew up in the black community, the Jewish community. I miss my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, after working in D.C. for 23 years in Congress uh, for you know, almost like 15 years, I wanted to change of pace, and I, I go back and forth to Washington, D.C. Though. I, I, I spend half my time uh, in here and half my time in D.C., but I, I love being in Charlotte. I have to tell you that the actors here are great. Uh, you can call the mayor, they'll call you back. There's no turf here, no ego problems, really. And I, I formed a um, one progressive united front, a big old coalition um, called Alliance of More Progressives. So when we lobby and we protest, we all do it together, and which I love. And um, So I'd say I really focused on becoming the executive director of the Justice Action Mobilization Network, and our mission is a multiracial organization. Our mission is to get 
to 100% cleanable energy in our country around the world and to end poverty. So I really spend my time, you know, doing doing that work. That's great. You know, great people. Oh, you're, yeah. you're a co-founder. You, you are a co-founder of Jam. Uh, <laughs> I didn't want. You're also the, I, you're the co-founder of the Progressive Democrats. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Oh yeah! So, um, I'm Joel, raising hell, but I know you are. I know good trouble. You, I, I know, know you are. I'm doing what John Lewis says. I'm, 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 it's good. I'm taking the good part. Okay. Now, <laughs> let me get to this. Yes, sir. You have another effort that you have uh, founded, authored, brought together. It's an yes. effort for our black brothers and sisters. Tell us about that. What is that? Sure. Um, well, there's two different efforts. One was to establish what Mandela did in South Africa. It's a Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, and a reimagining trial, but it, it is going national. And we have 30 commissioners, and the idea is to give the unheard, the forgotten, the left out, and the least of these and empower them and give them a chance to talk to the entire city of Charlotte, elected officials, the media, the, the white community, so that, that people can listen to the pain and the struggle uh, of, of the African-American community, the Muslim community, the Native American community, the Hispanic community, uh, so we can start changing policies uh, and, and so designed to end permanent black underclass and you know, and deal with racism in this country. We're not having an honest conversation about institutional racism. There's still Islamophobia. Mm -hmm. There's still people who don't want Hispanics living here. Yeah. There's still people who don't give a damn about whether or not Native Americans have clean water, that they have the worst COVID-19 infection rates, but they're ignored, like, don't exist. So this is going to give them a forum, and in two weeks we start our first hearing. The second thing that I'm doing, is I'm working for a group called um, restorative justice Charlotte and we've introduced a resolution the city council that's ba it's basically calling for a, a marshal plan of black Charlotte an apology for urban renewal and the removal of blacks from the you know the city and stolen mm -hmm. wealth mm -hmm. and then we lay out the Marshall plan and we, we're building a movement that I've never seen before in this city and it's challenging the whole system here the oligarchy that runs this place and we're saying that we're not going to tolerate uh, a two cities, one for the poor and one for the rich, and, and, and it's going great. You know? Either we're going to do it together or we're not going to do it. Well, we got great people. I got, you know, I'm working with Queens College. I'm working with African-American faith leaders, um, you know, business leaders, and, and the, the, tone, the tone that we're trying to strike is this is good for the whole city, it, but we don't want a permanent black underclass. We don't want to have... Uh, Jim Crow economic apartheid anymore. We want ladders to opportunity, but also there needs to be restitution to stolen black wealth. And I'm Jewish, you know, we have reparations. Uh, Native Americans have had reparations, not enough, but um, instead of this being all radical and flimsy, we're really presenting this as very mainstream and, and just and fair and moral. However, I will tell you that the old leaders of the city are backing away and they, they don't want to support us, <laughs> which I which I expect. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you're actually up you you you're you're fighting a force that's been in existence for centuries. My question to you is 
What kind of pushback are you getting from the wealthy people down there, the ones that own everything? They, 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 well, they were going to support us um, on August the 10th because they're going to put the resolution, I think, up for a vote. And, and they went from saying, yeah, we'll, we'll speak in favor of the resolution to we're not going to speak in favor of it. But they're not, they're not actively working against it because what, what I do, you, you've known me for a long time, Jay. Mm-hmm. What I do is I'll go and have meetings. You know, I, I, I'm a student of Martin Luther King and what's going on in You know, I worked on the Hill for 13 years, and you, you learn to work both sides of the aisle. And you got to negotiate with people and say, look, having uh, a, a big black middle class, that's going to save you money. You're not going to pay as much in taxes and people going to prison. You don't have to worry about people stealing your stuff when you, go, when you come when you leave work. You don't have to worry about homeless people right in front of your buildings. Um, you know, don't you want to live in a world-class city? We want to be number one in basketball and football. Why not number one in upward mobility? We're 50th. My city is last, 50 out of 50th. You, you have a 4.4% chance of getting out of poverty if you're, if you're poor and, and black. You know, and I'm like, what they're afraid of in the resolution is what I put in there alone. We would embrace the goal of being number one in upward mobility. That's what's scary enough because they know, and I've been privy to um, conversations that are going on within the city council. They're worried that if they adopt that goal, then they actually have to, to get there, and that that's going to cost money. It's it's all you know. It's not always the same thing. I, I write a bill to end homelessness and introduce it to bring America on that. And I even had members asking of the Black Caucus and say, Joel, you know, we love your bill, but I think it's going to cost too much. And all the taxpayers in my district will rebel. So that is the biggest fear of what John Kent's government calls the comfortable class mm-hmm. is going to have to pay higher taxes when what they don't understand is they are going to pay much higher taxes if you don't prevent violence and drugs and alcohol. But really, we don't need to accept the old system. We've got to throw it out. And we, have, we need a new system. And the new system should be based on, I would say, what Europe looks like. You know, Sweden, Norway, mm-hmm. uh, Germany, mm-hmm. France. Yeah. Um, social democracy that, of course, the right wing twisted those words from Sanders and made it look like he was, you know, Fidel Castro. But we do need to move more toward that model. And I'll say this in conclusion, when, when Martin King was assassinated, it, it was right when he initiated the Poor People's Campaign and came out against the Vietnam War. And that, I think, is when the white business community, the CIA, the FBI, they had him off of Martin King because he was threatening what? White wealth. Mm-hmm. When you start threatening white wealth, you're in trouble and you're going to get pushback. Because what we're really trying to do is reverse Reaganism. I call it Reaganville. What was mm-hmm. Reaganville? Mm-hmm. Cut, cut taxes on the rich. Cut the, cut the housing budget by $80 billion, Create a homeless problem. Then, then we're trying to also re- reverse um, Bushville. What was Bushville? What was, remember George Walker Bush? You remember him? Yeah a, thousand, yeah. a thousand points of light, which I call a thousand points of darkness. That was let the charities handle poverty and housing and health care, not the government. So what they did successfully, the right wing, they demonized government as the bad guy, promoted the faith community and the nonprofit 501c3, many of them, which I believe are poverty dumps. What we're saying is now, it's the government's role to create an equal opportunity society for everybody and they don't like that because they're used to Reaganville and Bushville and we're taking that on. Okay. So now, Joel, 
you're pushing for a minimum of $15 per hour wage. It's a lot of money, right? Do you realize how many people that would bring out of poverty? It would bring millions out of poverty. Okay. The billionaires, millionaires are not wanting to do that. Why? Why, why would they not? That, yes, that's the provision right now, the $15 an hour. Well, I'll, I'll just tell you some of the things I'm hearing. Um, well, if you... If it's $15 an hour, then the businesses will have to cut back on benefits. And my response to that is, not if we had universal health care. If we didn't have universal health care, if we had universal health care, you don't have to worry about a benefit cut. So I told my town hall meeting, this is what I heard from our, even from our supporters, and I said, that's the old system. We're talking about a new system. That includes universal health care. Now, in Seattle, Washington, they implemented a $15 an hour minimum wage. And it, by the way, it should be called a maximum wage. See, minimum wage shows you how kind of the oligarchical power structure thinks. You're going to pay people the minimum. That's really it's pretty disgusting, actually. Don't you think we should pay a maximum wage? Just think about that for a second. Yeah. Minimum yeah. wage just means you're, you're a minimal person. You don't matter. So in Seattle, Washington, they passed a $15 an hour ordinance. It boosted the business community. They're seeing profits that they've never seen before. Job, joblessness going down. Because I have this idea, I call it moral economics or spiritual economics or love mm -hmm. economics. Mm -hmm. When you do the right thing, Roosevelt talked about this. When you do the right thing, the universe has its own ecosystem. God will reward you and the universe will reward you. If you do the wrong thing, why do we know that? That's why we have so many people in prison who are black. That's mm -hmm. why we have so many poor people in, in Native American countries who don't have access to running water. During the time of COVID-19, why we have so many foster care system and homeless shelters, the human ecosystem is out of balance because all the money has gone to the one-tenth of one percent. What we're saying is Marxism has nothing to do with progressive taxation and living up to the preamble of the Constitution, mm -hmm. right? That's to promote right. the general welfare. That's it. We're just saying, let's, let's just implement our Constitution, liberty and justice for all. That's what our country is founded on. It, but it can't be a platitude. We need to implement that in, in policies. And yes, people are fighting back, just like people fought Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement and, and, and AIM and the Native Americans when they said, there's always pushback from the ruling elite when you're trying to do the right thing and do God's will. There's always going to be pushback. I expect it. But you know, I'm lucky. I'm a white guy. I got white privilege, so... No, 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 no. You're not white. I'm you're, not white. You're, no, tribal people. You're from, you're from, your people are from Israel. We Those choose are, you, we're tribal. Yeah, you're tribal people. You're and not, I'm glad that you, thank you for recognizing that because most people don't recognize that Jewish people are a minority. We are tribal. We do believe, and, and if you look at a lot of your most progressive leaders in our country, I don't care if they're in the Congress or in the grassroots, they are Jewish, and you know what? No one ever brings that up because anti-Semitism is alive and well in the left. You know, you know, I'm telling the truth. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed that Jewish people were never recognized in terms of what we did in the civil rights movement and what we're doing now? Mm -hmm. We're all affiliated with you know uh, Israel and occupation. Thank you for thank you for giving me some love and my people some love because we love you too. Not a problem. Now, Joel, you know this this. This whole thing of accumulation of wealth by just a few is very, it has been proven to be extremely dangerous for all of humanity. Would you agree with that or not? 
It is Yes, it is, because let's look at the fossil fuel industry as an example. The idea of the, of the oil and gas companies and coal companies um, owning a large part of the wealth is going to destroy our climate. I, that's just sort of a case in point. Number two, if, if you look at crime increases, foster care, safety of everybody, uh, maternal care, infant mortality deaths, by concentrating the wealth in a small group of people's hands, it's what Mr. Connors, Representative Connors, called structural violence against everybody else. I would say, why don't we do what's best for the 100%? That's, that's what I believe. Let's mm-hmm. do what's best for the 100%. And I understand the 1% narrative. I get that. If you do what's best for the 100%, then we will have a progressive taxation system and Maslow's hierarchy of needs, housing, health care, jobs, schools would be universal rights, not privileges. Um, and, you know, including having two countries, remember, remember, remember John Edwards ran as president yeah. in America? Yeah. Well, what if we had, if we had one America, then we would look more like Europe. Mm-hmm. Or what I would call the United States of Europe. I lived there for four months. I, I loved it there, but they had housing. You know, I'm not saying it's perfect. No. But if, if you want to live an upper-middle-class life, go to, go to Germany, go to France, man. Yeah, I know. I've been there. But, Okay. Now, Joe, let me let me let me hit something else real quick. Okay. This whole thing of who your brother is. Okay. Okay. Now, you and I, we knew we were brothers when we when we sat down here the first words about twenty some years ago. That's correct. But we do have another brother that so many, uh, should I say, right wing racist white people just can't stand. And and you and you and I both are good. We're we're brothers to him, and he's a brother to us, Minister Louis Farrakhan. Okay, all right. I'm, I'm very. I know him. I know all of his staffers. I know all of his people, and I've known him, and I've worked actually with. Now I'm going to tell you that I do have. You know, I did disagree with Minister Farrakhan, and remember, he did apologize. Mm-hmm. I don't want to cut you off, um, but Farrakhan at one time said that Judaism was a gutter religion. And, mm-hmm. and, and in, in Judaism, we, we, we have this thing called atonement. Right. In, in the Torah. You have to atone. Okay. He, he made an apology. He had prostate cancer. Yet, remember? You know, yeah. And, and he made an apology that what he said was wrong. Yeah. That's called atonement. Exactly. And, okay. Now, people can hold that against him for the rest of his life, or... People can forgive him and move on. Now, I've worked with Farrakhan's top people. When I took over uh, a, a large park in the city of Charlotte because they closed down a homeless shelter that I was running in the middle of winter because they were get, trying to get rid of me because mm-hmm. I was talking about corruption and stuff and saying that we need to end homelessness, get rid of the, uh, you know, the radical Jew boy. I took over a park for a week. I did civil disobedience. I didn't want the guys to freeze to death. Mm-hmm. And it was the days of Islam that came out and, and helped me more than anybody. When I was in Congress working on universal health care, it was the nation of Islam, uh, last name was Mohammed, who came and, and supported single parents. So I, I have had very good experiences with the nation of Islam. I'm not saying that I agree right. with everything they stand for, but you, you, it's not a good idea to, to stereotype the nation of Islam because of what one person said. 20 years ago. That's right. That's not a good idea. And you know something, Joe? Um, mm-hmm. You know me. You know. I know you. It's, uh, 
I just firmly believe in okay. what some of my ancestors, like Chief Joseph, Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, they never looked at anybody and judged them because of the color of their skin or okay. because of whatever their religious conviction was. Mm -hmm. They looked at everybody, even when whites yeah. came here and tried to kill all of us as members of the human family. And told him you need to get your you need to get your stuff together because you're not thinking like a human being, and that's the same situation that has happened to the nation of Islam. Now, some of my some of my dearest friends are members of the nation, just like okay. just like some of my dearest friends, you, just happen to be Jewish people. So what? Okay. And. As my grandfather always said, it's not about the color of your skin or the color of your eyes or the texture of your hair, the clothes you wear, or who you worship and call your God. It's how you treat my heart. That's what it's all about. Would you agree? Well, I have to say that you're one of my most important mentors, Jay, and you are one of my most important teachers that I've had in my life, Jay, which you know that. Mm. Um, I, I've listened to you for decades now. And I remember we were having a conversation. You said, Joel, Jewish people and Native Americans, black people, we're, we're tribal. We, we, we believe in an extended family. Your pain is my pain. And that was very, probably one of the most important conversations I've ever had in my life because you illuminated and made me understand who I was as a Jewish man, okay? You made mm -hmm. me understand who I was. And, okay, that was one thing you did. And then the other thing you said, it doesn't matter, you know, about what's in your mind. You said, it's how you treat my heart. I have told that to so many people. Mm. And, I, and I want to thank you for that. And um, Robert Ronnie Samuel Charlotte, who's the chair of the uh, Justice Action Mobilization Network, is now giving lectures and speeches uh, in Charlotte across the nation. And what he's saying is that race is a fiction. It's a lie. It's a myth that was promulgated. It was made up by people of European descent to exploit black and brown bodies for profit. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it, it really, it's a fiction, and it is a fiction, and, and Rodney's right. Um, there is ethnicity, we know that. Yeah. But, okay, there's ethnicity. And I respect ethnicity and culture and all that, but at the end of the day, where America has to take a leap from where it is in its consciousness, it does have to acknowledge and recognize we are first all part of the human family, and if people want to divide themselves by race, go ahead, man. Do it. But you know what? I have, I have a great life because i got so many friends from all different races, and I learned so much from my black family and my Hispanic family and my Asian family and my white family. You know, we're all part of one beloved community, and that's why I've always loved you because you always brought everybody together, Jay. All right. So, look, let's do this. There's a lot more for us to talk about, so we're going to take a quick break and come back. Sure. Okay. All That's right. Good. So you can you can you can rest for a minute because I know how you are. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother James. I I know you too well. Anyway, this right. is the the American Indian Indigenous People's Truths Justice for All, the most dangerous show anywhere. Don't go away. It was 1988. The AIDS epidemic at its peak. When asked in a debate who he considered American heroes, Vice President Bush praised a young research doctor, Anthony Fauci. 
I think of Dr. Fauci. He's a very fine research top doctor at National Institute of Health, working hard doing something about research on this disease of AIDS. He's an American hero, a kid from Brooklyn who grew up over his family's pharmacy. At five foot seven, he was captain of his high school basketball team, a natural leader. Under six presidents, he's quietly worked to keep America safe. In a time when truth is under assault, He's always been straight with us. So I can say we will see more cases and things will get worse than they are right now. While President Trump lied. It's going to disappear. One day it's like a miracle, it will disappear. Now Donald Trump is attacking Dr. Fauci. Why? Because Trump failed America. So he does what he always does, attack and blame. No, I don't take responsibility at all because... So who do you trust? Donald? The dope? Then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute. Or a doctor. To protect our families, on November 3rd, we can make Donald Trump disappear. It's not a miracle. It's democracy. Okay, welcome back. Joel, are you still there? There's a, there's a great song by the funk sax player, Ronnie Laws, called Always There, and I'm always there for you. Yes, I'm back. And the same for you, bro. You know that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, let's, let's, let's talk a little more about this project that you're heading up in, uh, um, sure. Sure. in North Carolina. What is it called? Yeah. What is it called, Joel? It's called the Restorative Justice Charlotte Project. That's that's what I'm, I'm actually, you know, their political whatever director. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Restorative Justice Charlotte. Then then there's a commission that I'm I'm the uh, organizing director for that, and that's that's civil society. It's not you know nonprofit, um, and that's called the uh, Racial Justice Reimagined uh, Charlotte um, Commission. And um, I actually, the idea came from Lee Community, Blake, and we went to the mm-hmm. White House and mm-hmm. we met with Obama's team and we were going to do, you know. So um, it came from her, I was her idea, and then I just, I just decided, hey, you know, let's, let's, let's do it now. And, and because what my concern was, I didn't want to sell the Black Lives Matter protest, which was the largest protest, even larger than the 1960s, multiracial, calling for police reform and, 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 uh, and then institutional racism. I didn't want to see that subside like Occupy Wall Street. As soon as that died, so did their movement. So I'm trying to professionalize the Black Lives Matter movement through this commission, through you know going to the city council, and I'm also working with Representative Barbara Lee. She has a bill that would create kind of like what Mr. Conyers wanted to do, a commission, got 134 co-sponsors on I am I am working on that project too, but um, so I'm, I'm working, you know, here in Charlotte on both of those projects. Okay. Joel, we just had the death of uh, one great man. Well, actually, two. One was uh, Baltimore. Uh, Elijah Cummings. Elijah yeah. Cummings. And then right. John Lewis. Yeah, and, close. Oh, yeah. yeah, and this thing in the White House <laughs> refu- refused to even show any kind of uh, remorse or anything, refuse to be a part of their, their funeral services, anything. This racist idiot. Mm-hmm. John Conyers, 
to me mm-hmm. was second to Dr. King as father of uh, civil rights in this country. Thank you for acknowledging that. I wish more people would acknowledge Mr. Primers. Mm-hmm. Thank, yep. thank you so much. And um, we've had some of our great leaders just that just happened to have classified themselves or society have classified themselves as as a uh, uh, black or African Americans, but we know that some of these people also had Indian blood. What are some of the great things that that, that you remember John Lewis for? Well, first of all, I saw him every day. Mm-hmm. I saw John Lewis every day, and um, I'd always say, um, you know, good morning, Congressman Lewis, and he'd say, good morning, Brother Siegel. He, he called me Brother Siegel, right? mm-hmm. Brother Siegel. Mm-hmm. That meant a lot. Like, I'd walk by him, I'd be like, that's John Lewis, man. Yeah. So I was in, I was, you know, I had just started with the universal healthcare effort in Congress, and I was getting beat up very badly by the white staffers from uh, Congressman Dingell's office, Mm -hmm. by my own staff. Mm -hmm. Um, No one wanted to do universal healthcare, and I felt like I was, I think you were there when we launched. Were you there when we launched the movement on the steps of the Capitol? Yeah, I was there. Yeah, I was there. Yeah. Okay. So remember, San, Sanders spoke. Uh-huh. You know, uh huh. Uh, Barney Frank and I spoke and got all upset. Told my mother and she couldn't pay my bills, my insurance, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. And that's how I got to Mr. Connor's office. So I I brought the movement into the Mr. Connor's office, which angered the staff and angered the members, and I was in a black caucus meeting and there, you know, every black caucus member of some kind of a strategy meeting or something. And mm-hmm. So I raised my hand and I said, I'm Joel Siegel, Congressman Connors. Connors was sitting right in front of all the other members. And I said, how do we win universal health care when our own organizers have no money, we don't have a paid staff, we don't have an office? Yet the right wing and the, the you know insurance industrial complex, they got billions of dollars and I still see how, you know, how we're going to win this. And John Lewis' booming voice said, Brother Siegel, in the 60s, in the civil rights movement, we put our bodies on the line in the streets. We were willing to die for what we believed in. You know how much, Brother Siegel, we got paid? $16 a week. Hmm. <laughs> he said, <laughs> he said um, and he said, so he, what he was trying to tell me was, don't lose hope. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys really got better than we did. Uh, he said something about they would sleep like six to eight to a house, you know, they were saying. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And that was really the most powerful thing I, from him was, don't look, we did it and you can do it. Don't lose hope. Mm-hmm. You guys got it pretty good. You know, we put our lives on the line. You guys are a lot safer than we are. And mm-hmm. I, I would say he, he really... He passed on to me that civil rights spirit of you don't ever give up, you know. And I, I and plus, you know, you would hear him on the house floor. It was always booming with, with passion and activism. And you'd be sitting there in your cubicle writing a bill about to fall asleep, you know. <laughs> you know, listening to, to these like boring, you know, mainly white guys talking on the floor about some boring stuff. And Sean mm-hmm. Lewis was just. You know, he said, like Martin Luther King. And, you know, he, ring, he would ring the bell. Okay, everybody wake up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, 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 he would, I would say he, he was the conscious of the Congress. I think Mr. Conyers, 
was also the conscience of the Congress. Yes, he was, yeah. Low-key, low Mr. Connors is very low-key, but Lewis, man, you know, and just his staff with the nice staff on the Hill. Uh, when he, you know, when he passed away, I cried. Um, I thought, I wish he had more years ahead of him. But uh, it, on Netflix, they did a whole thing on, on John Lewis. Everyone, everyone should, um, I think it's mm-hmm. called, called Good Trouble. Everybody, everybody should watch it. Well, you know, you remember the times that I used to come to visit you in your office, uh, John yeah. Conyers' office, and... Yeah. Um, yeah. And after, after I called him Uncle John, and yes, I, you did call him Uncle John. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, 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 he loves you, man. Yeah, And then, uh, remember the first time he rode in my car? Uh, we were in the garage, and and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, I looked uh, over. I said, I said, there, there's Congressman Conyers. So I, I rolled the window down. I said, Uncle John, do you need a ride? Yeah. <laughs> You remember that? He said, "Okay, well, yeah." And, and we took he, him out. We took him somewhere. Well, he used to always say, um, "Brother Siegel, who's that Native American guy on WPFW? What's his name? Night, Night something." <laughs> I said, "Say Night Wolf." And go, get him on the phone. <laughs> I think he's a yeah, he, uh, he he loved you because he felt like he represented. Uh, you know, the Native American voice that he was very serious about. So he, he had the greatest respect for you, you know, as did um, the rest of us who um, mm-hmm. you know, listened to the Nightwolf show. Um, I don't know the circumstances about, you know, why it's not on the show, and, but I do know that uh, that was the one show that, that he, he did look for. He, he would listen to Andy Goodman's show, then he listen to your show. Uh, I, I did tune into your show every, um, every t- you know, when it was on because, uh, you had phenomenal guests, and uh, you had me on a few times. But um, you know, you're, you're. I mean, in Washington D.C., you really, um, you, you're the, you, you know, you were the voice for Native American people. Joe. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I want to thank you for your the decades that you know. I remember you called me up and said, "Look, Joel, I'm I'm doing a fundraising drive because the people. Um, I can't remember what was the South Indian, Dakota, South Dakota, South Dakota." You said they don't have any blankets and they don't have heat in their homes, and you, you raised enough money and donations and you filled up. I remember you filled up a truck. Two two fifty three foot tractor trailers. Tractor trailers, and these were things that you know people don't know about you, and mm. but I know I know who you are, and you you love the Native American family. As do I. You, you know, you know, you know. When I was involved in Robinson County, mm-hmm, almost mm-hmm. lost, my, almost lost my life from the fighting mm-hmm. for the uh, Lumbees down there when I was a law student. And uh, actually, I, I was um, I'm an honorary Lumbee Indian. I'm very proud of that. Yeah, I, I know all that because you know I know some people that knew you back before uh-huh. you got before you got into Congress. You know, <laughs> into the to the big seat in Washington. And I, I can't understand why you don't run for Congress, Joel. Well, I, I've been asked a lot lately to run for mayor, run for Congress, and um, I'll run for the board before I do that. I, I feel like um, <laughs> my, my role is I'm, 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 uh, I'm an agitator, and, uh, and I'm very proud of that. I'm in the tradition of other agitators that I admire, Martin King, Gandhi, Mandela. Uh, King was never elected to office, and neither was Gandhi, and um, I think that's where, you know, I, I belong, uh, at least for now. I, I was going to run for the city council of Charlotte. I had the black community did something kind of funny. They, uh, there was a big town hall meeting. 
lost me to come up front. And I said, why do y'all want me up front? And then they said, we want you to get up there and run for say you're a rough sea council. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, all right. So I got up there. I'm running for city council. But I realized I couldn't run for city council and then and then do the uh, jam and executive directorship. I just couldn't do it. Absolutely. So, look, we're going to take a break and come back and talk yes. some more. Uh, don't go anywhere, bro. Hey, man, I love you, man. <laughs> love, you, love, love, love you more, bro. Okay, we'll be right back. My name is Dan Bargoff. I'm an ex-Navy SEAL turned emergency room physician and the founder of Veterans for Responsible Leadership. I'm an American combat veteran and a conservative. I don't agree with Joe Biden on many issues, but one thing we agree on is that we are a nation of laws and the Constitution is a sacred document. It's a document that I fought for and some of my friends died for. Protecting our freedoms and the rules of the game is a fundamentally conservative act. President Trump shows no such respect for the Constitution. He and his cronies disrespect freedom of assembly, due process, and states' rights. Joe Biden will conserve the Constitution. He will conserve the rule of law. He will conserve the American dream as we've promised it to our children. Trump is weak. Trump is not conservative but he's the most easily fixable problem in America today. A vote for Joe Biden in this election is a vote for our Constitution. The Lincoln Project is responsible for the content of this advertising. Wow, can you believe that, Joe? Yeah, man. <laughs> a, a Republican? You know, a, a, a military decorated veteran, a Navy SEAL on top of all of that? A conservative? that can see right through Trump's bull? Well, you, you've seen the probably most impressive commercials against Trump are from the Lincoln Project. And what, what you're seeing is that he has a very radical, you know, right-wing, probably 40% base, um, and they're going to vote for him no matter what. And if you look at the demographics, it's, it's not, the majority are, are um, white men and women who have a high school degree. And um, If that, he, if that. Yeah, if that, and... I, I call him uh, the imperial wizard of the KKK, uh, what, what, you know, uh, David Duke couldn't aspire to, and, you know, the head of the new, the new uh, white nationalist movement, and he's in the White House. And I, I don't think people understand who the hell this guy is, but his, his advisors are come from Breitbart, okay? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Steve Bannon, right? Let's, let's, be, let's be honest here. His senior advisors are the leaders of the white nationalist movement, and he's, you know, he's parroting what the, his senior advisors, who were former white nationalist leaders, I mean, imagine if Heinrich Himmler and Goebbels were in the White House, and that's what you got going on over there. And we, we don't want to admit it because we want to think, oh, our president, he, he would never be a white nationalist. He is a white nationalist. He said, Let's, we're going to ban Muslims from our country that's white nationalism no president has ever banned muslims uh -uh, uh -uh, he, put, uh -uh. he put hispanic children in cages internment camps like the jews in world war ii or the japanese you know what the nazis did the jews in world war ii what we did with the japanese internment camp uh -huh, uh -huh. He, he's praised people in in virginia at the at the university of virginia he praised them people who were like you know death to the jews and and, and said there's no difference between them and those who were fighting racism. And I can go on. He calls, you know, the Kung Fu flu and the Chinese flu. Mm -hmm. And he 
and he divides us by race, by color. He is the most despicable. He's the worst president. Of, I think Woodrow Wilson, I think, was the worst, I think, in history. But I would say Trump Not anymore. Not Wilson. anymore. He, Trump puts yeah. Wilson to shame. He's a liar. He's a compo- he, he never tells the truth. He, I mean, we've never had anyone this dangerous. The other thing that concerns me is, will he be the, um, the head of voter suppression uh, for 2020 November? Yes, I, I would say we can count on him and his administration to lead the effort to make sure that blacks, Hispanics, and Native Americans, and especially Native Americans, by the way, I don't know if, what they do with Native Americans a lot of the Native Americans don't have an address. They have a P.O. box. So, mm-hmm. so, they, so what they do is they don't send them absentee ballots. They, I mean, they purge them from the rolls. They, they, I mean, this is, the Native American purges are the largest in history, by the way. And no one's talking about that. I mean, I always feel like the Native American community, it's, it's almost like they don't, even in the progressive movement, they don't have to talk about Native Americans. I really find that it's really disappointing to me that the people who founded this country, who were here before anybody, are, are the most impoverished, have the worst housing, don't have clean water. Don't most have, don't have electricity. Don't have electricity, don't have any plumbing, and there needs to be, and I'll tell you, there should be a Marshall Plan. That I would love to draft that bill. I would love to draft a Marshall Plan of Indian country and have you lead it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I mean, and, you know, black lives matter. Guess what? Mm-hmm. Native American lives matter, too. And, and it, it's really something, I'm not angry about this, I'm disappointed, that the progressives just don't talk about the Native American community. And that's not right. Mm-hmm. And that has to change. Because our Native American family, you know, it was the Iroquois Federation. It was, they're the ones that founded democracy. Exactly. We, exactly. we hardly lost around the spiral of American history. Franklin, right? Ben Franklin, yeah. Jefferson, they were students of Native American leaders. Yes, the Greeks, okay, the Greeks were the founders of what they call Athenian democracy. Mm-hmm. American democracy was based on Athenian democracy, but it was more based on the Iroquois, because they had a, you're an expert on this, I'm not. The great, the law, they, the great law of peace, the great law of peace. They made the thing, you, know, you had your tribal elders, but they didn't have like one person that said, okay, I'm, I'm the chief. And, you know, no, they, no. They, they, they took a vote. Mm-hmm. So democracy, our democracy came from the Native Americans. And it's like, we don't acknowledge that. And we don't acknowledge the beauty of the culture the beauty of, of, you know, look what the Native American, look, look at Standing Rock. Mm-hmm. So here you have the Native American community fought the exile Exile pipeline and won. Not only did they win, they were the example for all the other battles that I've been involved in. I, I was involved, I've been involved in the shutting down the Atlantic Coast pipeline. We won that battle, by the way. But if it wasn't for the Native American community, whether they're in Canada or whether they're out west, there would have been no fight. And what non-Native Americans need to do is learn and study how do, how do Native Americans organize. What's, how, study their philosophy. Look at their, the way they have an extended family. 
see, I got to learn from the Native American community because I fought for the Native American community and, and almost paid it with my life. Mm-hmm. But I remember after Eddie Hatcher was freed from jail and, and, I, and I was made an honorary Lundy, they took me to this community center and they said, Joel, you ever had fry bread? And I said, no. <laughs> How about chicken and dumplings? I said, no. <laughs> and and they, they, they said, and I, I cried. They, they did this, uh, it was a dance around me and introduced me and fed me and I felt all that love. There you go. I never, I never felt that before, man. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. maybe at a bar mitzvah, but mm-hmm. all this love from the Native American community. And here I am, this white dude in law school, and then people came up to me, hugged me, kissed me, and I, I, I tell you, it changed my life. I, I cried like I couldn't stop crying. So mm-hmm. I get it, man. I yeah. don't want my Native American family oppressed. It's kind of like second-class citizens. So I have to feel that I wish, I wish you'd get some of your Native American friends to work with me on that deal. I will do that. But listen, let's take another yeah, break. And when we come back, sure. there's two things yeah. I want to talk about. First of all, okay. Donald Trump's inability to do his job in the 26th Amendment. And okay, sure. You got it. Uh, when, okay. when it says uh, all men are created equal, we want to talk um, about when did all men become equal. In this country. <laughs> okay. My guest right. today is my brother and my friend, Joel Siegel. We, we, we will be right back after this announcement. We will march through the South, through the streets of Jackson, through the streets of Danville, through the streets of Cambridge, through the streets of Birmingham. But we will march with the spirit of John Lewis. He was jailed and beaten, but never bowed. The son of sharecroppers, he was one of the first freedom riders. Attacked by a mob and left for dead in a bus station in Montgomery, Alabama, he got back up and led the fight for justice. That was John Lewis. He always got back up and never quit. Surrounded and assaulted by hate, He rejected violence and embraced love. For over half a century, he showed us the true meaning of courage and dignity. Today, America is in another crisis and a new wave of hate is once again embraced by the powerful to hold on to their power. In the days ahead, let us be guided by the courage of John Lewis. He never quit, he always got up. He knew a better day belonged to those who had the courage to act. Now it's our turn. We must say, wake up, America, wake up, for we cannot stop, and we will not and cannot be patient. The Lincoln Project is responsible for the content of this advertising. Welcome back to the American Indian Indigenous People's Truths, Justice for All, the most dangerous broadcast anywhere. My guest today is a dangerous man, but he's my brother and my friend for many, many, many years. Joel Siegel. Joel, before we left to go on break, the president, or this fool in the White House, is not mentally or spiritually or any any other of those lees capable to run this country. Why is it that these congressional members will not enforce the 26th Amendment? And you know what that is, right? 
You're talking about the Twenty Fifth Amendment. Yeah, when they when you find that the uh, yeah, the, the president well, the, is not capable. Yeah, well, the Twenty Fifth Amendment. Okay, what that that deals with issues related to presidential succession disability. So, uh, okay, I know it clarifies like the vice president becomes the president if the president dies, resigns, or is removed from office and establishes procedures. Now, I know I know about that amendment. Um, if if the uh, sitting president is found to be incapable of performing his duties, not because he's sick physically or he's been injured physically, but be just because he's just an idiot, <laughs> <You know? laughs> then Congress can remove him. So I'm wondering, you know, we talked I about that question. Yeah, I got you. Uh huh. Okay, go ahead. Well, they did try to remove him. He was impeached by the House, and the Senate said. We're not. We're not. We're not going to impeach him. Sorry, but so they blocked his impeachment, um, and that that was based on lots of basically a breach of trust in the in the way he dealt with you know Russian intervention, and um, it was based on tre- really treason actually, and um, and so many of his you know top people went to jail to protect him, but basically what the Congress says was that yeah Trump knew that that they were going to interfere in our election and it was okay for them to do that as long as they got dirt on, on Joe Biden's son, right? And, and um, you know, there was a quid pro quo from the Ukraine. If, if, you, if, a, if you want a meeting with Trump, you have to first do an investigation mm-hmm. on Joe Biden's son. Right. You can't do that. That's impeachable. And he got real lucky, but he, yeah, look, he was impeached. Okay, now... The ultimate impeachment and removal will be on November the third, right? Twenty, and that is where, and this is where I'm, I am in national leadership. Um, I have formed the Emergency um, Grassroots Election Protection Coalition, which is I can't count all the organizations involved, but um, uh, we were forming coalitions in North Carolina and the swing states to protect the vote, before the vote, during the vote, and after the vote. The Democratic Party has no plan for that. Uh, and I know that from speaking to officials who I can't name at the highest levels of the Democratic Party. So we're coming up with our own plan. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm raising money to, to fund you know, people to do you know, poll watching. So Republicans are going to spend $20 million. And they're going to put 50,000 people on the day of the election to look for so quote-unquote suspicious people. That's blacks and browns and students. Like, Oh, they're the, going to have armed militias there. They're going to probably get the, they're going to pay probably off-duty police to intimidate the hell out of the voters. But what they're going to do is say that the absentee ballots are invalid and fraudulent. That's what they're going to do. And I don't think it's just going to be Trump. I think it's going to be the entire Republican Party. I think it's their strategy. That's called authoritarianism. So we really need the United Nations to come in here, you know, and and protect the election. I really I really do wish the Democrats would call. I think we need uh, UN supervisors of our election. Since we have moved towards an authoritarian dictatorship, we just don't want to admit it, and neither does the press. But if you have a, if the opposing party has said the only way we're going to win is to suppress the black vote, they said it. It's mm-hmm, public in the mm-hmm. brown vote. You know, so what are they doing in Alabama? They have a poll tax. What's the poll tax in Alabama? You have to get two signatures. In order to get an ASCII ballot. Get two signatures, huh? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Um, you know, where there used to be a uh, hundred some odd, you know, polling places, 
uh, in states like Alabama, you know, now they have five or six. I mean, so uh, all I'm saying is, that, you know, and, and I'm trying to get a Judiciary Committee hearing on all this, right? And, and, um, to, and to subpoena these people who are doing this stuff, they purged, you know, Greg Powers has his new book, How Trump Stole the Election in 2020. They purged, the Republican Party has purged since 2014, 17 million people. Yeah. Off the rolls. Mm-hmm. Illegal. Mainly black and brown and Native American. And, you know, Greg Powell needs to testify, right? That's they true. Need to subpoena, they need to subpoena these governors, these secretaries of states who are behind this. And Republican officials legally subpoena them, put them on the hot seat, put them on the C-SPAN, and let everyone know, welcome to Nazi Germany. Welcome there to you, German Mouth China. There you Welcome go. Russia. We are here. Wake up, America. We are in an authoritarian dictatorship. Wake the hell up. And Jay, that's, you know, I just wish people would wake up, man. Yeah, yeah. That's why, you're, that's why this podcast is very important, because you actually give people an opportunity like me. I'm not going to go on MSNBC. I won't be invited on MSNBC or CNN. But to go on your show, you're moving off those of us who are doing the work an opportunity to speak. And I want to thank you for that. Um, Harvey Watson is leading this effort, by the way. Um, our board is very prestigious. You know, uh, Reverend Leo Woodbury, Greg Tallist, Andrew um, uh, Miller. I mean, we got a huge board. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we're going to fight back, and we're going to make sure this election is not stolen. And if we have to do civil disobedience, and, and that's what we're organizing for, is keeping our, we're going we're gonna to try to get embedded in the Board of Elections, demand accountability, demand to know how they're going to count their votes, let them know that we're here, because we can't, you, you can't sublet democracy, you, you can't see those sidelines, you've got to participate, and what's more important than a vote, you want, you want Donald Trump out, you want McConnell, you want mm-hmm. the left to fight for suppression, and go out and vote, and then if Biden gets elected, I think he's going to, I think it'll be Kamala Harris, um, if I hear one more person say that Biden is a sellout and a corporate Democrat, I'm, I really am going to scream. Right now, if any president who's ever run as a Democrat, he's putting forward the most progressive policies I have ever seen. And people have to understand what happened was he, he's having task forces with, with Bernie Sanders, and a lot of the Sanders agenda is starting now to be the Biden agenda. Um, right. I mean, I'm talking about radical stuff. That Yeah, day. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. I know I got you all riled up. But now I'm very relaxed. Now. <laughs> all men are... I think, cre- I, think, I, think, I think a little passionate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you. <laughs> now, all men are created equal. Do you remember that? I think I heard that. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to know... I want to know... In, in, in the United States, when the hell did all men become equal? The only time that all men have become equal is when the people demanded. Well, it's interesting, men and women actually. Um, uh, well, in black people, what three fifths of a person? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, remember that one, right? Three fifths of a person. Native Americans were savages. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So the I don't ever call them the founding fathers. I call them the founding framers. They they weren't my fathers. The only way that all men and women can be created equal is when the people demand that, and that's why you have to organize and form movements. My my complaint about the progressive movement is that it's too siloed, and I, I, I'm on calls challenging the progressive movement 
to unify under one progressive umbrella, and, and I'm not I'm not getting anywhere with it so far, but I don't care. You know, I'm going to speak truth to power, whether it's to the left. But I, I, I find there's too many nonprofits and boutique activists who, if they really believe in empowering the poor and the blacks and browns and the poor whites, they would unify like Mandela did. And, you know, and, and when, I, when I talk about these movements, um, nobody ever agrees with me. Um, SNCC, SDLC, AIM, remember them? Yeah, I remember National all of them, Congress, yeah. Mm-hmm. Indian National Congress. So when you have the bourgeois, red, fake, fake, you know, progressive movement, I, I, I'm, I'm calling people out, man. That's right. And, well, that's that's what you do, and that's what you should continue to do. And I, I don't care. I learned this from you. You don't like me because I'm. See, look, I, my family. My mother has no money. Okay, mm-hmm. she, she's very poor. My mom. My brother, very poor. Mm-hmm. Okay. Starting age 21, I was very poor. I was homeless. I only went through it for four or five years, but I am going through it with family members. See, this is not, I ran homeless shelters most of my life, foster care programs. I was uninsured most of my life. Mm-hmm. This, this isn't intellectual to me. This is personal. This is coming from my own experiences, both with my family. Even though I'm privileged, really, because my skin color. It's like, it's, like, it's, like, it's like you don't know, but you do know. You lived it. Yes, I do. Yeah, you know what? I do know. I know what it's like to be flown out of the doctor's office and have the lie that I had, I was a millionaire. And I know what it's like to be in a shelter because I slept in the shelters. Mm-hmm. I slept in abandoned buildings. Mm-hmm. I didn't have food. I was on food stamps. I didn't have underwear. Why? Because I, 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 I have a life-threatening illness. I had it under control. But if you get disabled in America, no one's going to take care of you here. Mm-mm. You can't get health care. So, see... I don't pay attention to the phony leaders who claim to be fighting for the people. I organized the uninsured on the Internet for three years. I organized the uninsured in Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C., and you helped me. And Joni, Joni Eisenberg, remember I'd go on your show? Yeah. yeah. I didn't know the engine. I organized the uninsured, man. Mm-hmm. That's when we launched our movement. That's why we won. So I, I get, you know, I'm not, I'm not mad. I'm just saying, you know. You want to be revolutionary and power the people? Act like it. Unify. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, Bernie Sanders gave us the agenda. Mm-hmm. But you can't have 150,000 nonprofits getting their money from the 1% claiming that they're for the people. That, that, that's a lie. That's a, bull, that, that's a bunch of crap. That's a bunch of crap. Sorry. I'm okay. okay. Something happened on the Capitol steps last week that just totally pissed me off. Okay. When... Uh, Representative mm-hmm. Yo-Yo, oh, it's Yo-Ho, 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 <laughs> call, call. You know uh, if they're not good, you know if they're not good, they with Yo-Ho. Yeah, <laughs> so anyway, when he called, when he called, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, who was one I really love. Yes. A effing bitch. Yes, he did. I wish I was there because I would have been on the news because I would have knocked his teeth down his throat. You don't call a woman that I don't give a damn who you are or what you are. But especially you are an elected official and you call another elected official that just happens to be a woman. She that happens name? to be a brown woman. She, yeah. She's, look, yeah. She, she's, she's black, Native American, Jewish, Right, Jewish, Hispanic, mm-hmm. Puerto Rican. Now, because she was a brown woman, if it if it was a white woman who's progressive, 
he would have never said that. Mm-mm. But because she's a brown woman, he then got to not only be sexist, but he got to show us racism. And, and there's a lot of other members of Congress who are calling her a bitch under their breath. Mm-hmm. He just went ahead and said it. And that does show you the mindset of white supremacy in this country. That's why tens of thousands of people are in the streets demanding a new America that's based on inclusivity, diversity, Black Lives Matter, and a new political bitch. Yeah, because he, with impunity, because he knew he could get away with it. And he didn't, did he? Mm-mm. No. <laughs> and, 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 and you know what? Um, I, when I was in Mr. Connor's office, I remember my first week, someone called me and started calling and called Mr. Connors the N-word. Mm-hmm. And I used to get hate mail, about, I don't know, 100 a week. He's a socialist and die and die. You, seriously, that's what I got. So when anyone ever tells me that racism is gone, I'm like, I work for John Connors, and I read the mail. I got the phone call. So I remember I said to someone who called him an N, I said, can you give me the name and address of your trailer park? <laughs> good for and, you. And good good staff, for you. <laughs> my chief of staff, Greg Moore, called me to his office. He said, Joel, you, you can't do that in Congress. You, you just can't. I said, he called my boss the N-word, man. I mean, I'm sorry, but I, like he goes, you're going to have to get used to it. So... I'm just saying that, you know, if you look at Ocasio-Cortez, she is the epitome of the American dream, grows up in a poor Puerto Rican family. Her, her, her family does everything to send her to a, you know, get a good education. They got a little house in the suburbs. Didn't have no money. She's a scholar. She goes to Boston University. She graduates at the top of her class. She's a waitress. She's teaching. She runs for Congress. And she's fighting for working class black, brown, and white people. There you go. You know what she is? She is an incredible genius who's one of the most important figures of this nation. And when she's the president, I guess he'll be in the grave because she's going to end up being president one day. She won't be a fucking bitch. She'll be called President Anacasio Cortez. Okay? I got you. I got you. Joel? We have gone over, and it's all right. It's all right, though. Uh, I want to uh, thank you for being my guest on this bri- on this broadcast podcast. And uh, I love you, bro. I love and, you more. And we're going to talk again, right? Yeah, and, and, and I want you to make me a promise. What's that? You're going to continue doing this podcast, and don't you ever, ever stop, Jay Nightwolf. Don't you ever stop. Keep hope alive. I love you. I love your, your your team, you know, that was Mo, my brother Mo, mm-hmm. and um, because it doesn't matter where you do your broadcast, it's who's doing the broadcast, and that's Jay Nightwolf. God bless you, man. Take care. Hey, man, love you, and we'll talk again probably tomorrow. I'll call you. Yeah, we'll go play some basketball. I'm going to dunk over you, okay? Yeah, well, you know I had the operation on my neck, so you could probably do it now. I <laughs> <laughs> right, love you, brother. Okay, bro. Take care. <laughs> Peace out. And for all of you that have listened to this broadcast podcast today, I want to apologize for some of the crude language. Any of you that know me know that sometimes I can get off the hook. 
but it's only because of my passion and compassion and my love for all of you, members of the human family. I can't stand injustice anywhere. I don't give a damn who it is to or who's doing it. If I see it, I got to get in it. I know, but you're an old man. No, I'm 73 years old with a lot of heart. And if I see a man disrespect a woman, I will get in his face until one of us go down, even if I go down. But at least I know I tried to protect a woman. This podcast was designed to tell it like it is. And where else will you ever hear a Native American's voice telling it like it is? Our people tell it like it is all the time, but they don't get the opportunity to broadcast on a podcast or a radio show. But that's okay, too, because it will happen. Just like Harriet Tubman told that white slave master, Gideon, God didn't intend people to own people. Even though slavery has ended here in the United States, there is still another form of slavery, mental slavery, imprisonment. It's still slavery. And slavery by anywhere on anybody is wrong. So as Harriet Tubman said back in 1848, we out. I'm out. I'm Jay Winter Nightwolf, and this is the American Indian Indigenous Peoples Truths. Justice for all. The most dangerous show anywhere. Talk to you next week. to live in peace with the Indian, he can live in peace. There need be no trouble. Treat all men alike. Give them all the same law. Give them all an even chance to live and grow. You might as well expect the rivers to run backward, as that any man who was born a free man should be contented when penned up and denied liberty to go where he pleases. We only ask an even chance to live as other men live. We ask to be recognized as men. Let me be a free man, free to travel, free to stop, free to work, free to choose my own teachers, free to follow the religion of my fathers, free to think and talk and act for myself.